Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Welcome, all listeners. Today is November 8, 2017. We have a great show for you. Our very special guest is Dr. Elliot Hirsch, and we're going to be discussing breast implants and how the FDA has discovered that there could be a link to breast cancer, or there is a link. Dr. Hirsch is a board-certified plastic surgeon, and he practices the absolute full spectrum of plastic and reconstructive surgery. He specializes in both cosmetic and the reconstructive, and he does breast reductions and implant removals and revisions. He completed his integrated plastic and reconstructive surgery residency at the prestigious Northwestern Memorial Hospital Program in Chicago, where he received several awards for his research and teaching. I'm going to bring him on our show now, and if there's something further that he would like to uh, introduce about himself, you go right ahead, Dr. Hirsch. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always like to start the show off by asking, how did you get on the path that you're on today? When did you discover you wanted to do this? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's a funny, uh, surgery is kind of a funny field where a lot of people who go into surgery are kind of drawn to it. And for me, I had always known that I was going to do uh, some sort of medicine. It was one of those things where, you know, if you'd asked me when I was in second grade or third grade, I, I probably would have told you I was going to do some type of medicine. But once I got to medical school, I spent some time shadowing some of the uh, professions that were out there. And we all, we all did that to a certain degree, but I was always drawn towards surgery. And when I saw the different types of surgical specialties that were out there, the really interesting thing about plastic surgery kind of jumped out and that plastic surgery is not as simple as learning to take out an appendix or learning to fix a broken bone. In plastic surgery, you learn tools and techniques and you use those techniques to solve problems. And so I think the problem solving aspect is what really drew me in towards plastic surgery. So I was in Chicago for uh, seven years of my residency. And once I graduated, I came back out here and, uh, you know, this is Los Angeles. There's, there's a lot of women with breast implants here in L.A. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think just naturally because of that, I, I do a lot of breast surgery. Yeah. Well, it's a, good, it's a great field to be in, and you, you're very passionate about it. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, the nice thing is that um, with, uh, with breasts, you, you may not necessarily be, at least in the reconstruction aspect, you may not necessarily be saving lives but you're definitely changing lives and impacting women's health for the better. So it's a very mm-hmm. rewarding field to be in. It's something that every day I'm, I'm grateful I'm able to do this. Well, they've pretty much, have they, 
I, I shouldn't say, have they eliminated silicone breast implants or are they still using them? Uh, not at all. And uh, not at all eliminated. They are um, still in use. And I would say the implants are better than ever. And we are, we're very confident that implants are safe and uh, very effective and have high rates of satisfaction. Oh, how about the saline ones? Which ones do women um, prefer? What's the percentage, would you say? Well, in reconstruction after cancer, I would say, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever done a saline implant in a reconstruction after cancer. It's, uh, after cancer, there's really nothing left of the breast. It's just skin, a little bit of muscle. And so when you're reconstructing that, uh, if you put a saline implant in, it'll feel and look like a bag of water. It'll ripple. Oh, my gosh. It'll be, yeah, it'll be spongy. It's, it's just not the right, not the right uh, way to reconstruct a breast with an implant. So after reconstruction, oh. we almost always use silicone. And that being said, there's, there are several different types of silicone gel, ranging from uh, gel that's very cohesive like a gummy bear to mm-hmm. gel that's very soft and, and very spongy. Uh, it just really depends on each patient's anatomy and the specifics of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, as to which type we use. There's also different types of implants in terms of their shape. And often patients come in and they'll say, well, I want a, I want a 300cc or a 400cc implant. And I'll show them on the implant order sheet, you know, I can, I can easily point out probably seven or eight 300cc implants. And so it's, it's, it's really, uh, they really specialize the implants so that we can pick a really specific type of implant to help reconstruct the breast shape and give patients a much more natural look than they had before. That's really interesting to hear. Really interesting. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and there's, darn. you know, there's three, uh, three major implant manufacturers. Now there's uh, mentor, Allergan and Sientra, and uh, all, all of them have a good product and you can really, you know, with, with those three manufacturers and each one has a couple different styles. You can really, you pick and choose and get the get the exact look you're going for now. It's kind of a crazy question, but do they put serial numbers on them? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Each implant has a serial number, a uh, reference number, and so you always you can always track. And all, all silicone breast implants get entered into a registry. So you can always track where the implants are going and how they do over long term. Oh my gosh, that is that is really cool. Yeah. Very scientific. <laughs> oh, Very oh scientific. my gosh, I love it. Well, let's uh, yeah. let's get into um, this FDA thing, wherein they've discovered a rare form of cancer that's linked to textured silicone breast implants. What's that all about? So that's this is something that's relatively new. I think uh, in in the plastic surgery field, this first popped up, you know, maybe maybe six or seven years ago. And what, what they found was uh, that patients who had these older textured implants seemed to have a very, very small risk of developing what is called anaplastic large cell lymphoma. It's a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that is associated specifically with the scar tissue that forms around the breast implant. Now, anytime you put a breast implant into a person, uh, the person's body responds by forming scar tissue around it. We call that the capsule. So for whatever reason, these textured, old textured implants seem to be associated with a certain type of lymphoma that was only found in the capsule of the breast implant. Then as they investigated further, 
they found that it seemed to be more specific with the texture of breast implants. And they investigated, investigated even further, and there, there seemed to be a certain type of bacteria that, that was associated with these texture implants in the cancer. So the current thought is that the presence of this bacteria somehow promotes this prolonged inflammatory response by the body, and the body's mm-hmm. response to that, just the immune system goes haywire, and it can uh, it can cause you to form this type of cancer. Wow. So did they advise all the women that had them? Well, you, you have to keep it into perspective. So okay. to date, you know, as of, as of February of this year, um, you know, there's been a total of under 400 of these cases ever reported. And mm-hmm. if you think that at least 300,000 implants have been going in every year, for the past 20, 30, 40 years, your chance of getting this is extremely low. And when I have patients who are thinking about getting texture implants versus uh, smooth implants, and they're all silicone, it's just a question of texturing or, or smooth, and that's just how the surface is treated. What I tell them is that if you want a textured implant or if, if I think it might be in your, in your best interest medically to use a textured implant, then your chance of getting this is about the same as your chance of getting HIV from a blood transfusion. So okay. it's extremely low. And it's not something that people need to worry about uh, in terms of, am I going to get this? Or are they going if they have the implants in, I'm not, should I be losing sleep over this? Or should I get my implants swapped out? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. The how other, many the other years, aspect of this too. Um, I'm sorry, but how many years are these implants good for? Well, they don't have a true expiration date in the sense of, you know, if they're, if they're in for a certain amount of time, then all of a sudden something bad's going to happen. What, what we find is that roughly every 10 years or so, uh, you're pretty much going to want to do some kind of change. And it's not mandatory. And if you go past 10 years, it's not, not that big of a deal. Uh, but this, the literature would say that after about 10 years, 50% of people have some type of revision. And so we recommend that patients, after they have silicone breast implants, be it for augmentation or reconstruction, we recommend that every 10 years uh, you consider a change, but every year you'll see your plastic surgeon and they'll evaluate you and, and you may need to get, um, the FDA recommends getting um, MRI screening at regular intervals after your implants are in. About 10 years or so you can figure you're probably going to be up for something. So most women will, will come and visit their plastic surgeon at least once a year? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, too, it's, it's important to keep seeing a plastic surgeon because implants change. And even this year, there's, there's new types of implants that weren't available over the past two or three years. And sometimes these implants are significant advances in terms of their safety profile and how they look or how they feel. And so if you don't ever follow up with the person who put them in or another plastic surgeon, then you'll never know about these advances. And so it's really important to always follow up just so that we can make sure nothing's going on. And if something good comes up, you need to know about it. Mm. Interesting. So this rare cancer of the immune system, um, where it's had some really difficult effects on women, um, and a lot of them have had reconstructive surgery after breast cancer, what are their best options? When uh, women develop this type of cancer, and again, it's, it's extremely low risk, but usually the first line treatment is to do what we call a total capsulectomy. So we basically go back into the breast, 
we take out the breast implant, and then at the same time, we take out the scar tissue that is associated with the breast implant, the capsule. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the time, as long as you get all that scar tissue out, get that capsule out, then you are healed. And uh, usually no further treatments necessary. Occasionally, oh. though, depending on, yeah, depending on the pathology, you might need some form of chemotherapy uh, or you might need some form of radiation. But it really, each mm-hmm. patient's a little bit different. And it just depends on the surgery, how it goes, and what, the, uh, what other findings are present at the surgery. Are you now able to do anything with the um, radiated tissue that some women um, end up with, wherein it kind of like turns black or whatever? Yeah, that's, that's actually a good question. And radiation is, you know, it's, it's one of the things, when I have a patient who's had radiation, this is one of the things that causes me to lose sleep at night all the time. Uh, it's, it's a tough situation because radiation causes irreversible changes in the tissue of the breast. And at a cellular level, what it does is it causes uh, damage to the uh, DNA of the cells so that the cancer cells don't replicate, and this lowers the uh, chance of recurrence of the cancer. However, it also causes fibrosis uh, or scarring of the blood vessels that are present in the capillaries of the breast tissue and causes fibrosis of the breast tissue itself. So the breast tissue gets firmer and harder and usually shrinks and contracts. And the blood vessels, excuse me, the blood vessels being fibrosed means that you have relatively less blood flow to the incisions. And so as a consequence, uh, because you need blood flow to heal incisions, tissue that does not have as good a blood flow doesn't heal as well. So when patients have had radiation therapy and they need additional breast surgery, it really makes uh, makes it much more difficult and, and they have a much higher complication rate than if they didn't have it. So mm-hmm. in the past, what we would do, we would do some form of what we call a flap, which is to bring in tissue that has not been radiated so that the breast has a much better chance of healing. So the most common sites that we would bring in tissue to do breast reconstruction in a patient who's had radiation would be their back, which is called a latissimus flap, or their abdomen, which is called a uh, tram flap or a deep flap. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the past few years, people have been, have been kind of experimenting with other things, and one thing anecdotally that we found is that if instead of doing a big surgery where you take a piece of skin and fat from the abdomen and do microsurgery where you attach it to the chest, people have been basically liposuctioning fat and injecting that into the breast. And we've seen, just, again, not, not a lot of studies have looked at this in great detail as, as to why this happens, but we have seen that this, for some reason, seems to improve the skin quality in patients uh, that originally were not able to undergo an implant because of the radiation, we have been able to do implants in them safely because we've been doing all this fat grafting at the same time. That's interesting. So it's a form of liposuction? Yeah, pretty much. It's it's a matter of harvesting the fat using the uh, liposuction. Wow. Or, wow. yeah, like a handheld cannula, and then we process it and re-inject it back into the patient's breasts. I know that there's been, um, I mean, not that many women are fortunate enough to be able to have it done, the stem cell um, procedures where you're literally growing back part of your breast. It's pretty expensive. So, you know, maybe 100,000 women have ever had it done, you know, but. Um, yeah, I think I think the, the standard techniques though, that, that we just talked about, like the if patients get the, the reconstruction from their abdomen 
or the reconstruction from from their breast, um, you know, using an implant. These mm-hmm. work pretty well, and, and most patients are are very happy with them, and patient satisfaction is very high. The doing oh, the fat grafting that we talked about, uh, this there mm-hmm. are stem cells present in the fat, and so there there you are getting some some degree of uh, stem cells into. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Can you talk to us a little bit about what what's your standard method for reconstructive surgery? Sure. Um, it, a lot of it depends on the patient mm-hmm. and kind of what, what their expectations are and what their body habits is like. Um, in the U.S., the majority of reconstructions that are performed are performed in two stages. The first stage is what we call a tissue expander, and the second stage is an implant. So in the first stage, the tissue expander, what we do is we're basically putting in a balloon into the patient's breast. And that that balloon has a small port inside of it, which allows us to inject air or saline to help it increase in size. And then as uh, once we get that size to where we want it, in the second stage of surgery, we can take the implant out, or sorry, take the expander out, and put in the implant. So this is this is around 90% of what, what's done in the U.S. Uh, annually. Then the other options you can do, if the if you do the expander as a first stage, you can also do a flap from your stomach as a second stage, or you can do that at the same time instead of doing the expander in the first stage, or you can do a flap from your back, the latissimus flap, and that can be done either at the first stage or uh, as a second stage with an implant. So, again, the overwhelming majority of patients will have the expander, but then the other ones can also have a flap from their tummy or their back. So the expander stretches the skin, correct? Exactly. Okay. Now, if you have a flap, um, you know, from your stomach or from your back, and that's implanted, what does the breast actually look like after, say, a, uh, a year? It depends on what you do. And the, one of the nice things, one of the major advantages of using the abdominal tissue to build a breast is that over time, the, the abdominal tissue will behave like breast tissue. So if you have a natural breast on one side and mm-hmm. you have a flap from your stomach on the other side, they'll age at about the same rate, and over time, they'll look, they'll look pretty similar. Now, you'll have scarring, of course, and if you do nipple reconstruction, you'll have You'll have a nipple. Um, you can also do a tattoo, which works very well. So symmetry is usually pretty good, especially in clothing. Now, implants implants will always uh, they age a little bit differently, of course. And so if you have a natural breast on one side and an implant on the other side, the implant it may sag a little bit, but usually over time will not sag as much as a natural breast because an implant is made of silicone, whereas natural breast is breast tissue and fat. And so, in general, if a patient has a one-side breast and one-side abdominal flap, they tend to kind of get older appropriately with the patient. On the other mm-hmm. side, uh, if, if they have an implant on one side and a natural breast on the other side, oftentimes you may do a touch-up on one side or the other side um, just as you get older and, and things progress. Uh, that makes sense. Is the, how long is the um, incision, the scar, it's different for everybody. In patients who have a bigger breast where there's extra skin to be uh, taken up, then the mm-hmm. scar tends to be a little bit longer. In patients who have a shorter breast, or I should say a smaller breast, we can make the scar a little bit shorter. Um, but that being said, over the past few years, we've been doing more and more what we call 
a nipple sparing mastectomy. So these are patients who they tend their breasts tend to be a little bit on the smaller side, and they they tend to be not quite uh, saggy. So a younger patient or a patient who has more youthful breasts, what we can actually do is we can make that incision underneath the breast in in the crease under the breast, do the mastectomy through that incision, then do all the reconstruction through there. So when they get done, you actually don't even see a scar on the front of the breast. Oh, that's well, that's quite advantageous. But Absolutely. only with the smaller breasts? But only with the smaller breasts? Some of the bigger ones we can do that as well. Um, it just depends on whether or not they're a candidate for what we call a nipple-sparing mastectomy, where the cancer is not located directly anywhere near the nipple, or it's, it's maybe a, a type of cancer that it's early stage and it's not invasive, and they may need, um, you know, they won't need the, the radiation or just different types of patients. But sure. the ideal patient for this, yeah, the ideal patient for nipple spraying mastectomy is somebody who uh, would be possibly a candidate for a breast augmentation. So somebody mm-hmm. who has, uh, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who may have had a kid or one or two kids has enough skin on the breast and has had just, um, just not too much sag on the breast. Because... You always have to remove the nipple pretty much in in reconstructive surgery or not? Or with breast implants? Or is that a long time ago when they were doing that? Yeah, that that was a little while ago. And over the past few years, it's been more and more common to leave the nipples. And they have some early studies of this. And it seems like the survival rate of patients who have a nipple spray mastectomy versus a patient where they actually remove a nipple, it seems to be equivalent. And more and more patients are requesting this. And so whenever it's possible, we always try to accommodate, and we, we like to keep it around. Uh, from my standpoint, saving the nipple actually has a really important function on the breast. And number one, it gives the breast a center, which draws your eye to it, which really makes a big difference in the reconstruction. But number two, if you leave a nipple behind, it usually means that you're not removing any significant amount of skin. And so mm-hmm. the breast envelope does not change shape significantly. What this does, though, is, is it allows me to focus on volume and helps control the pocket dimension. So the pocket where you put the implant doesn't change dramatically because the skin is the same volume. And these patients tend to have a much better result than the patients who have nipple spraying mastectomies and a big chunk of skin removed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's really good to hear, too. I mean, obviously, you're informing our listeners on all the advancements yeah, I didn't know absolutely. about it. And, and, you know. <laughs> well, there's there's <laughs> things that change all the time in in plastic surgery, especially with with this field. And yeah, another major advance is that we've started putting the implants uh, in the expanders above the muscle instead of below the muscle. And so what what that does um, used to be that we would always lift up the pec muscle and we would put the implant under it. Over the past few years, uh, they have been using a type of cadaver skin, which is treated and processed, and, of course, it's sterile and safe to use. But we use this in our reconstruction to cover the implant or cover the expander to protect it. And when we do this, we are sometimes able to put this above the muscle. So the women who have this, their surgery is really not very painful, and they don't have that same pain postoperatively from the muscle stretching. So these patients, when we can get away with this, uh, these patients do really, really well. They have minimal pain mm-hmm. during recovery, and they look fantastic too. Oh my gosh! Huh. Well, you treat 
patients from all over the country at your practice in L.A., why don't you tell our listeners where you're located and uh, what other services you offer? Sure. We, we are located in Sherman Oaks, which is a suburb a little bit north of downtown Los Angeles. Uh, mm-hmm. We do the full, like you said, the full spectrum of plastic and reconstructive surgery with mainly a focus on uh, breast surgery, including breast reconstruction, breast augmentation, uh, breast augmentation revisions. We do a lot of implant removals when patients don't want to have implants anymore or if they have a ruptured implant, uh, we take out the, the total capsulectomies. But I also do other things like uh, tummy tucks and facelifts and uh, different types of liposuction and fat grafting and, and a lot of skin cancer too since it's L.A. and it's very sunny, of course. So what's your phone number and your website? Phone number uh, to the office is 818-825-8131. And my website is www.hirschplasticsurgery. That's H-I-R-S-C-H plasticsurgery.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. I know you've got to get back to your practice um, you've been extremely informative, and and we invite you to come on again. Thank you. I would enjoy that. Okay. Take care, Dr. Hirsch. All right, Denise. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that wraps up our show for today. Please join us again next Wednesday at 4 p.m. We'll have another great guest for you. Until then, be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?